and to, to speak on this very difficult subject. Now, I don't know if you would agree with this, but when you deal with this topic of depression or anything relative to mental illness, mental health, uh, these subjects get very tender very quickly. And so I want to treat the subject with the respect that it, it's due. But what I want to do in our time together tonight is to do a bit of understanding from the scriptures on how we understand this issue that we call in our culture depression. Depression is a, is a difficult topic, I would argue, to, to talk about and to discuss because there are many sides to the issue in the way people think about this, this topic of depression. Uh, some come at it from a very intellectual perspective, wanting to think about the issues of depression from the way the secular culture describes a human being and the things that, that, that they experience. Some people come at the, the issue from personal experience themselves. What they've experienced personally or what someone they know has experienced. And people experience these levels or feelings of depression to varying degrees. And so uh, people develop very strong opinions about these things. The way I'm coming at this is from the perspective that God's Word has something to say on the various issues that we struggle with and deal with in life. I want to set the stage just for a bit. I don't want to assume that, number one, you know anything about biblical counseling. I don't mean to uh, insult you in that way, but I don't want to assume that you've, you've heard of biblical counseling or uh, that you've heard any approach to it. So I want to start back at the beginning and, and try to help us to understand what, what is the goal of biblical counseling. Biblical counseling just has a basic understanding that we believe in the authority and the sufficiency of God's Word and that God, in His kindness, has revealed to us the things that are necessary, that are authoritative over our lives, and that are sufficient to give us help for everything that we need. In all the ways that man is broken, we believe that God has spoken and given us sufficient testimony on how we can deal with those types of issues in life. What I would submit to you that has happened is we've adopted a cultural narrative that describes the feelings and the experiences that we have as people, rather than looking at a biblical perspective on why we have different emotions, why we struggle in different ways, why we have different experiences and that sort of thing. I think the question that maybe you should be asking, at least at this point, is, I didn't know that the Bible actually spoke about depression. Does the Bible actually speak about this issue of depression? Now, the thing we have to do is distinguish here. Distinguish that, that the Bible actually does speak about these types of experiences. Now, what the Bible does not do is it does not use the same phrases and the same exact label that we understand in our current culture. Because right now, we, we sort of understand that depression is something that is primarily biological. Right? We, we sort of, in the history of understanding psychology and psychiatry, we, we have an understanding of depression or emotional issues as if they are primarily environmental or they are primarily biological. And you see, what that does is that reduces humanity to, to a sum of its parts, but not the total part of who we are as human beings. Yes, we are body. And yes, we are soul. The Bible describes us as an embodied soul, which means we have a physical part, but that's not all the part that we are. And we have a soulish part, but that's not all that we are either. And so we have to be cautious and careful in the ways in which we think about depression. What's, what's in vogue, particularly today, is we think of these experiences that we call depression, the feelings of sadness and despair, even coupled sometimes with suicidal thoughts or lack of uh, appetite, lack of sleeping, sleep deprivation is a part of that. 
And we tend to think that there's a biological cause. Now, part of that has to do with uh, in, in our approach to science and understanding. We want to have explanations for the things that we experience in life. And so some of the mistakes that I think we in churches make is we, we look at that explanation and we think that's more scientific than what we have to offer in the Bible. And so I'm not sure that, that we in the church can really help you with those types of things that you're experiencing. I think we have to be cautious about that explanation. Let me give you one statement. I want you to hang with me here. I think this is important that, that you understand this. Is There's been no research that explains from a scientific perspective that biology is the primary cause of any type of depression. In fact, what I would submit to you is depression and all the, the symptoms that, that are categorized to give us this understanding of depression is that those things are symptoms that we, we experience in varying levels in, uh, as human beings. Now, one of the assumptions here, I want you to be very cautious and careful as we talk through this, one of the assumptions is that it's our biology that creates the emotions that we have. Now, if that's true, what that means is that we might not be responsible for the ways in which we respond to different issues in life. Now, I would argue biblically that that becomes problematic because God does hold us responsible for the ways in which we experience life, the ways in which we respond to life. Now, we have to be careful in the way that we describe this. And so we have to, as you understand this issue of depression, I'm not saying that people don't experience despair, that people don't experience deep feelings of loss, that, that people, even believers, don't experience uh, suicidal thoughts. We experience those types of things. I think the assumption is, from a human perspective, is that, that we ought to live life in a way that's happy. And that ought to be our right to be happy. And so we begin to look at things like depression, the unwanted things that we don't enjoy in life. And we try to say, there has to be something wrong with me if I'm experiencing these types of emotions, these unwanted emotions. And so what we do is we begin to create theories of all sorts and all kinds to do everything we can within our power to remove those feelings far from us. And the church often has adopted a lots of different ways to build the self to such a degree that we want to rid ourselves of all kinds of feelings like that. And I would submit to you that, that that's not a biblical approach. So our primary goal tonight is to try and understand from a biblical perspective how do we deal with the issue of depression and despair and the symptoms that come along with it. Now before we get in, I think it's important that you understand from a secular perspective how we think about these issues. How many of you would say before you walked in the room tonight that the Bible has anything to say about the issue of depression? Uh, maybe you've been in conversations with people and you question as to whether or not the Bible actually speaks to those issues. I would submit to you that the Bible is full of these examples and I hope to accomplish that as a part of our goal tonight. So let's, let's begin. Psalm 34, 18. The Bible says the Lord is close to the brokenhearted. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. One of the challenges that we have in the church, I think, is to understand that people are crushed in spirit by the nature of the life that we live in a cursed world. We sort of assume that if all things go well and if I'm doing things rightly, that I'm going to have a happy and perfect life. Well, that's not close to what the scripture actually describes is a part of life in a world that's been cursed by sin. In fact, how does Jesus say that? In this world, you will have what? Trouble. And so we know that, that that's a faulty disposition. 
And yet somehow we approach life as if it should be uh, sanitary and there should be no problems. So how do, we, how do we minister to those who are despairing of life? I'm going to open up and read to you uh, from the book of Psalms, Psalm 42. And, and I want you to see, the reason I'm, I'm using this passage is I want you to see specifically how those even in the Scripture dealt with the types of symptoms that we would describe as despair or depression. And here the psalmist in Psalm 42 is describing this. I'm going to read the first few verses of verse 1. As a deer pants for the flowing stream, so pants my soul for you. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Verse 3, my tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts. And songs of praise, a multitude of keeping festival. You see what he's doing? He's looking back in the past at, at what he used to have. He used to have a longing for God. He used to have a desire for the things of God. He can remember being with the people of God and, and them worshiping God. And it was, it was wonderful. You've experienced times like that, have you not? And yet here there's a transition and he's asking himself this question because his experiences now are quite different. He longs for those times because he doesn't have those times right now. He's not longing for God in this moment. He's not desiring even to, to understand God. And this is the question that he asks. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you uh, in turmoil within me? I think what's happened is we've described these things like depression as something that's abnormal in life. And what I'll submit to you is that the Bible actually describes these things in a cursed world as something that's very normative. In life, that the symptoms that we experience living in a fallen world with the difficulty, loss, and pain that comes along with the strokes of death is that we would experience depressive type symptoms actually quite frequently. And I think that's actually reflected in the secular culture at the rates of how many people are being diagnosed with depression on a regular basis. And so if you think about these, these realities of the ways that we experience, listen to the way in which he describes this. He's telling his heart to hope in God, for I shall see him again and praise him for my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep and at the roar of your waterfalls all all your breakers and your waves have gone over me. Verse 8, By the day the Lord commands His steadfast love, and at night His song is with me, and a, pr- a prayer to God of my life. What he's describing here is the ways in which he is in turmoil in his soul. You see, in our culture, one of the things that I think we've done unnecessarily, I think I personally believe that we've been deceived by the evil one into thinking that when we have experiences like this, when our soul is in deep Turmoil and deep longing, and we don't feel the presence of God, or we don't feel like we're experiencing the presence of God, that we think something is automatically wrong with us, or something is biologically wrong, or something is environmentally wrong that's determining the person that we are. I think the scripture is clear that this is something that we experience quite regularly. Now, for us to understand this a little bit better and, and the importance of the biblical understanding of depression. I think it's important that we understand the secular view. So the secular view, there's a couple of different ways that I would describe this. I want you to follow with me here. I I don't know how much detail I should get into, 
uh, just for your sake, because I don't want it to be too boring. Uh, but I want you to have enough information so that you can make a good decision as you think through this process of what I'm describing. So, for example, in the United States, and it's very similar here in the UK, is we have a book that's, called, that's a criteria book. It's called the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. Uh, you in the UK use a book that's very similar called the ICD. Uh, it's on version 10. And that explains lots of different pathologies of, of problems and different um, diseases that we have and that sort of thing. And then it also has a section that's devoted uh, to mental health and mental health issues, diagnosis, um, the little labels that you would have based on some symptoms that you're given. In the U.S., that book is arranged particularly focused on mental disorders or mental illnesses. And the section that, that talks about depression, or what's formerly called clinical depression, it gives nine criteria. And the way mental, mental disorders are diagnosed are not by uh, any type of biological testing that you're given. There's no blood test, there's no DNA test, there's nothing like that that, that explains whether a person has depression or not. It's simply self-reporting based on the experiences that we have. And then there's an assumption based on a theory called the chemical imbalance theory that we have those uh, experiences or those uh, emotions or those uh, moments of being downcast because of some biologically, something that's biologically wrong in our brain. However, that's not even the way the seculars describe this. So they have a book that describes these nine criteria. And what I want you to understand, to be diagnosed with clinical depression, for example, is to meet the, these criteria that you have to have five out of the nine of these criteria. Now, what you need to understand is this, is the criteria themselves are real expressions. They, they, they describe real things that we're experiencing as, as human beings. They describe the, the depth of despair in terms of low appetite, low mood most of the day, lack of, uh, lack of sleep, and uh, lack of motivation, and, and so on. Or, or weight gain and weight loss very dramatically, those sorts of things. And so you lump those things together, and, and what they've described is this, this is a label of similar symptoms that are put together. They're called syndromes. That's a collection of symptoms, and that's what makes up clinical depression. And the way in which the criteria is written is if you experience five out of the nine of those over a two-week period, then you will be considered depressed. Now, the, the person who actually wrote that criteria, his name is Alan Francis. He's not a believer. Uh, he is a very godless man, actually. Uh, he was probably the most important psychiatrist for 20 years in the United States of America. And what he said, he was asked this question, Alan, why is it that you chose, when writing this criteria, uh, that you chose two weeks instead of three weeks, or two weeks instead of one week. What was it that was so important about having two weeks, having these symptoms that you're describing for a two-week period? You know what his answer was? It was a one-word answer, and he said, arbitrary. It was arbitrary. Now, when we think about mental health, that mental health world, we, we sort of assume that there's a lot of scientific backing behind it. But what you see here are just basic human observations about things that we experience very normally in life. And as those things are put together, what we begin to see is we're, we're giving our best guess. Now, here's the thing. People don't go into this type of counseling or any type of counseling or care or become a psychiatrist or whatever because you hate people. So the desire is when you see people hurting like that, you want to have a system, a way to explain it. And this is the way seculars have, have built the criteria to try and explain the problems that we experience. Now, it often gets misunderstood that for us as biblical counselors, since we say, well, 
The way the secular world describes depression uh, is actually faulty and non-scientific. That it's assumed that we think depressive feelings don't exist. Can I just tell you that that's absolutely false? What we would say is that, yes, the Bible actually describes lots of experiences that all of us have to varying degrees and varying uh, points of pressure that we experience in life, and that those experiences are absolutely true. But what we have to begin to do is start to look uh, backwards at that data that we experience and start to ask the question from God's perspective, God, why do we as human beings experience things like this? I want to advance the notes a little bit. Um, what we've done basically in terms of despair is we've stigmatized despair and categorizing as some sort of mental disorder. Now here, and what I've done is just put the the criteria that I just mentioned up here for you, uh, the nine criteria that I just described. And so I can read it straight from the pages of the DSM, which by the way, the ICD actually borrows um, the basic classification directly from the DSM. And I would argue, I'm almost embarrassed to describe that the DSM was written in America because it's really not good literature. Uh, It's actually not scientific. Even though it says it's a a statistical manual, it's not very scientific. So I'm sorry that we uh, influenced you in, in the UK in that way. And so when you look at the criteria, you can see these are all things that we experience on a regular basis. But what's missing, and what they tell you in the beginning of this book, in the introduction is that we do not know the etiology of any, any of the diagnoses that are in this book. Now, here's what's odd about that, because if you ask the, the average American, which is probably the same in the UK, if you ask the average American, why does someone have depression, you know what they'll say? Because of some sort of chemical imbalance. Is that common here? That's a common thought, too. Uh, well, in, in 1984, it was actually discovered that, that that was not the case. In 1984. I was five years old in 1984. I'm not five now. That's been a long time ago. What's odd to me about that is that uh, scientists are actually demonstrating by argument that, that these things are not true. Yet we still follow this pattern. And the DSM itself actually acknowledges in reality that, um, that there's no scientific basis to describe the etiology or the cause of why these things happen or how they happen. What they say is this criteria is simply put together to label people in a certain way that so you can have some sort of course of treatment moving forward. What I would submit to you is this. is there, This is the world's attempt to try and understand the brokenness of man. What man ought to be like and what he ought to experience. And how man is broken. And then in turn offer some means of salvation or restoration. Well, that's exactly what they're doing with the limited human means that they have. And the Bible says that 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 view or that wisdom is limited because the natural man cannot discern the things of the Spirit. So the natural man can't understand why it is that we as humanity experience deep and real despair like what the world is observing. But they can't explain why these things are happening. What I would say is that the Bible actually helps us in understanding here. The Bible describes in detail some of the things that we experience, probably to depths that maybe we have not realized or or maybe we've not paid attention to because in our culture we sort of assume we're much more advanced uh, in, in this whole process. And let me just mention this. I have so much appreciation for the scholarship that's happening in the UK because uh, what, what's happening is America... I'll just speak louder, is that okay? Oh, that's no worries. 
Uh, what's happening in America is we are so bound up in corruption with money um, that psychiatrists right now are afraid to admit what the science is demonstrating. And so if they're afraid to admit what the science is demonstrating, they've not been able to find any type of explanation of a chemical imbalance. Money is driving this, uh, this force to have this category that we call depression. What's happening in the UK, actually one of the first places that we've seen the benefit of this is through the British Medical Journal. There are secular scholars, secular psychiatrists here in the UK who are actually writing on this to a great degree. And really in the last 10 years, the best scholarship that's happened in relation to this issue in in describing and correcting the overuse of medication and the lack of scientific expression is happening by scholars here in the the United Kingdom. Uh, One of those is a lady by the name of Joanna Moncrief. Another is a man by the name of David Healy, who is a consultant during the the Prozac years uh, in America, but he's a scholar here. I'm not sure what's happening back there. Yeah, maybe I bumped it or something, I'm not sure. So, we'll just carry on. Is that okay? Technical difficulties. No, it's okay. It's okay, no worries. Um, So, what I want you to to pay attention to is that it's really important, the work that's happening here. As a matter of fact, I would commend to you this book and and recognize this lady is not a believer, uh, but yet she is um, a well-respected scholar internationally. Uh, Her name is Joanna Moncrief. She's here in the UK. She's written a book called The Myth of the Chemical Cure. She's not going, going to offer something that, uh, as a replacement that you and I would agree with because it's not a biblical basis. But what she is doing is she's giving actually a very healthy critique of the current secular model that we see in the world today. Uh, and these, again, these are coming from uh, my understanding as, as godless people, people who do not have any thoughts or care or respect for the God of the Bible. And what I, what I hope and pray is that Uh, we in the church will recognize that the secular world does not have answers to help people. My biggest burden, I think, with issues just like depression is that the church feels like they are inadequate to help people to deal with these issues. And can I just submit to you one of the most grievous things that I experience, that I I witness on a regular basis in churches that I go to, is that, that churches, no matter how loving and how caring they might be and how much compassion they may have on a person who struggles with issues just like depression. They believe in their mind that that's under the jurisdiction of the world. And so they don't get close to that person because they don't know what to say and they don't know what to do and they don't know how to engage that person, not believing that the Scriptures have uh, immense amounts of information on how and why we deal with issues just like depression all the time. And so one of the things I'm wanting to do is try to make sure that we claim once again from the Scriptures that the Bible speaks to these issues in very detailed ways and gives us the ability to minister to people uh, who struggle with these types of issues. So let's talk about the idea of what we learn from the seculars. I think seculars can observe certain things. They can describe what happens uh, but the problem comes is, is we as human beings were not created as just simple objective observers. As human beings, we were created as interpreters. So when you see something, okay, think about this, right? I'm a people watcher. Do you guys struggle with that? So much so that when my wife and I go to dinner, that she makes me turn a certain way at the table. 
so that I don't watch people. Because as I'm watching people and I'm watching them interact, I'm, I'm sort of interpreting what their life is like, how they're interacting with one another. They must have a wonderful marriage. They're laughing and they're enjoying one another or she gets a scowl on her face and man, he must have done something. You, you see what I'm saying? So you're, you're witnessing uh, things that are happening, yet you have no context, but what are you doing with that information that you're given? We are what the Bible would describe as revelation receivers. We receive revelation from God, whether it be in in the natural or by His Word, and we begin to interpret that to live life according to. And so when a secularist sees information, a person who's despairing, wanting to help, would they try to make sense of that and try to think of ways, how can we help this person? And what I would submit to you is, if we do that in our, own, in our own wisdom, the Bible makes very clear that any wisdom that comes from below, or as Solomon would describe it, any wisdom that is below the sun or under the sun, it is wisdom that leads to vanity and hopelessness. Now, the way that ought to resonate to you is, if we are trusting so much in the wisdom that's from below... The Bible already describes why we see depression and despair rising at rapid rates in the culture in which you and I live. And so now we have to turn our heart and our attention to allowing God's Word to help us to understand the human experiences that we experience every day. Another passage that I want you to consider is Ecclesiastes 11. Ecclesiastes 11. Verse 8, this is Solomon, this is what he says. 11 verse 8. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. And all that comes is vanity. You see, what Solomon recognizes is the state of the world in which you and I live in is full of darkness. You see, that's not the way our culture understands life. They abnormalize something like depression because they think life ought to be full of sunshine and happiness. Whereas the Bible is describing to us, because of the curse of sin, our life is full of darkness. Why? Because of the curse of death. The curse of sin which leads to death. And that word death just simply means separation and brokenness. And those of you who are older in the room, you know that as you get older, your body breaks down and you have less to hope in in this life. The witness of Scripture is true even by your own experience. We see that life, if we're trusting in our own abilities or hoping in something here, what does it lead to? Exactly Solomon's testimony. That it leads to vanity and hopelessness. One of the things that's interesting about Solomon's understanding is he's looking at things that were blessings from God. He's looking at work and toil. He's looking at wealth and riches. He's also looking at the gift of women. And as he looks at those things, he says, he concludes, without the understanding or the fear of God, what does it lead to? We pursue those things with all of our ability, and it leads to vanity, hopelessness, and purposelessness. Now, what I want you to see here is in description of the experiences that we feel in depression. How would you describe somebody who's experiencing depression? If I go back up to the criteria, this is, this is uh, how it's described. Depressed mood most of the day. Markedly diminished interest or pleasure in all or almost all activities. Significant weight loss when not dieting or weight gain. Insomnia or hypersomnia. 
slowing down a thought, a slowing down of thought and a reduction of physical movement, fatigue or loss of energy, feelings of worthlessness or excessive or inappropriate guilt, diminished ability and reoccurrent thoughts of death. Those are the nine criteria. Now, for somebody who's been depressed, uh, or maybe you have friends who've been depressed, what are some of the constant thoughts that pre- people who are depressed think about themselves? Or what do they think other people think about themselves? We can interact here. It's okay for you to talk. But what are some of the things that, that people would say? How would they describe their experience of depression? How would they describe uh, what they believe to be true about themselves? They're worthless. That their life is not worth living, right? What else? What do other people think about them? It would be better if I were gone. What are some of the other thoughts that they have about themselves? I can't do anything right. Everyone can do things better than I can. I don't have anything to contribute that would be better. If I have to continue to live this life, there is no joy in this life. They begin to think thoughts inwardly. They're very introspective about uh, the lack of their own abilities and so on. Now, here's what I would submit to you. is If you are thinking like that about yourself all day long, what's a very normal response if you believe that to be true about yourself? I would argue that you ought to be depressed. You see, here's the odd thing about this, and don't be fooled by this, is we say that that response to that belief about myself in depression is an abnormality. And what I would submit to you is your, your emotions are not broken. Your emotions are just being consistent with what you believe to be true about yourself. And so the way God describes a human being is uh, from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Or Proverbs describes in verse 4.23 that the heart is the wellspring of life, that we are to guard it with all diligence. Why? Because it's from the heart that flow everything that we are and do. So it's the, the way that we think and believe to be true about ourselves and about God and about the world and about other people that really begins to guide the way that we respond emotionally. And what I would say is that that emotion that you're feeling and experiencing is actually consistent with what you're believing to be true in that moment. What you believe to be true about God, what you believe to be true about yourself, what you believe to be true about the environment around you and the people around you. And so what I would submit to you is that that in and of itself is not an abnormality. That's actually quite normal. In fact, that's the way the Bible describes the despair that we experience in life. So what I want to give to you with the time that we have left, and I don't remember what time I started, so I'm not sure what time I'm supposed to finish. How convenient, right? Yeah, very brilliant. Yeah. So I, I will finish at, at 30. Is that right? We'll finish at 30. Um, and if not, you just wave your hand out there or, uh, and I'll quit. What I want to do is to give you a perspective that's much more nuanced than what we see in the secular world. What they say is if you're feeling depressed, there's something wrong with you. And I think that's an oversimplification of the emotions that we experience. And we even reduce it down to saying that if you feel this way, it's because something that's broken in your biology. Now that's what I would call biological reductionism. It's reducing you and the meaning and purpose that you have in life and your identity down to what happens in your biological being. But that's not the summation of who you are. The summation of who you are is made up of both body and soul. Okay, So we have to pay attention to, to this idea. So what I want to do is to give you five basic reasons. Five basic reasons from the scripture why we experience despair. Some of these are positive and some of these are quite negative. 
But there are five basic expressions of why we experience depression or despair. Here's what we have to understand. Is that despair is quite normal to the condition in which we live. Despair is quite normal to the condition in which we live. Now from a Christian perspective, and and I would argue that we as Christians think quite differently about life and about what's good and what's evil. We think quite differently than the world. Would you agree with that? And so we can't take an experience like depression and act as though it doesn't fall under the jurisdiction of God's world. God actually created the world. It's broken by sin and everything that now flows from it is under His jurisdiction. And so to to act as though God has not spoken about these very intimate and detailed experiences that we have as human beings actually says something about the character and the nature of God. Because if He claims in His Word in 2 Peter 1, verse 3, that He has given us everything we need for life and godliness, yet He forgot to tell us about this issue that we experience quite frequently called depression or despair, then is He really a good God? In fact, I will go further and say it like this. That all the ways of God, the Bible says, are His wisdom, which we see from the very beginning. He tells Adam and Eve, He created everything, He says, this is good, this is good, this is good. This tree, to eat of it, that's evil. And then everything I made is very good. And God distinguished His wisdom, because that's what wisdom is. That which is good and that which is evil from God's perspective. Now, as sin entered into the world, what also entered with it? The desire for human wisdom. The desire to explain things from our own perspective is what we say is good and evil. What we say is right and wrong. And here's the distinction. Any wisdom that comes from above, the Bible's testimony about that wisdom, all the way through, especially when we get to Christ, when we get to the Lord Jesus, we see that He's wisdom of God that comes down from heaven that leads to life. And so all the wisdom of God leads to restoration and life. That assumes that we are what? Broken and dead. So God knows exactly what He needs and He provides through His wisdom exactly what we need to be restored. You see, it starts in the assumption that we are broken. And that's closer to the experience that we have as human beings, isn't it? But the assumption of the world is that we are not broken. And that we have wisdom sufficient that if anything goes awry, then we can, we can fix it, we can repair it. But all the ways in Scripture that describe human wisdom leads to death and destruction every single time. So what we have to be cautious of is how are we framing this idea when we talk about despair. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 11 and 12, uh, For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. And then he finishes with this phrase, he says, So death is at work in us. What does he mean by that? That even because of the curse of sin and the death that we experience in the world, and the difficulty that we experience because of the curse of sin, that God is using that to work in us. So God is not describing that the the effects of death don't touch us as human beings, or don't touch us even as believers. God is actually describing in a very normative way that the death and destruction that's real in the world, we experience on a regular basis, and it's actually for something. God working in us. This is what George Swinnick, the great Puritan, said, The highest and holiest man's heart will not hold out forever. 
what he's describing here is that we can't hold out in our own strength with the experiences that we have in the world. It will break us to the point of despair. And the only hope that we have is to trust in the only God who can save us from the despair of the world that we live in. Aren't you grateful that you are not at the mercy of your experiences if you're a believer? You see, that's what this whole secular world does is they take the experiences that we have and they pretend as if we are at the mercy of the experiences that we have and that our emotions are uncontrollable responses to these experiences that we have. And that breeds hopelessness. And what I'm telling you from the Scripture is that even when we have really bad experiences, and we're not acting as though those things are not true or real, they are real. But even when we have those experiences, that we are not at the mercy of those experiences. We are at the mercy of God to restore, to make right, to build back, to grow us. Now, there are faulty ideas that I want to clarify before we get into the the biblical perspective. There are faulty ideas about how we wrestle with darkness. The first one I've already mentioned is that the church is not the place for this type of care. I don't know how it is in this country, but in in the country that I live in, in, in the U.S., Uh, This is absolutely true. Uh, Most churches think that it is not their responsibility or their role to get into emotional issues that people struggle with. And what I would say is if you section off areas of a person's life that you think are not the church's responsibility, then what you do is you say that Jesus is not the Savior for whatever's broken in that person. You see, we've got to see the implications of the the, uh, actions that we create. So we're not at the mercy of our dark experiences. Uh, the mental health system, in, in, in my view, if we, uh, if we believe the, the secular world, then the mental health system is the best, best we have to offer. And here's what I would submit to you. As demonstrated in our country, we spend a ton of cash on it. That, that means money. I don't know what term you use here, but we spend lots of money on that, and it's been very unsuccessful. In fact, what we've seen is increase in diagnosis, increase in uh, psychiatric ward, increase in use of medication, increase in all these things, and what it demonstrates is we're not being successful. And if that's our only hope, where do you leave people? Worse off than when they came in, in more despair uh, than when they came in. And, and another faulty idea is that our hope depends on our ability to exclude all darkness and all dark experiences from our lives. So what do we try and do? Insulate and isolate ourselves from any potential of dark experiences. And here's what I would tell you. Uh, you can never do that. Because no matter how much you insulate and isolate yourself, the most, most wicked thing about the world in relation to you, according to Scripture, is you. The darkness of your own mind, the darkness of your own heart, the wickedness of your own flesh, which God calls us to put to death constantly. So let's get into the five basic reasons for what I would call the churning of the fainting heart. That's how the Bible describes us. Now, I think this is by design from God. Because God is helping us not to place hope in ourselves. He's helping us to understand our own personal weaknesses so that we trust fully in Him. So five basic reasons. Why do people experience uh, the symptoms of depression, the experiences of despair, or the, the vexation of the soul? The first one is sometimes it's because of rebellious sin. Rebellious sin within against God. I'll give you a couple of examples. The first one is, is Asaph. Asaph is a figure that, is, uh, that wrote many of the Psalms. 
And this is one point that I'll make. The people that I'm going to talk to you about uh, were actually considered very mature believers. People who had faith in God. And so we often think, well, if you struggle with depression and things like that, it's because you're weak in mind. You're weak in heart. No, no, God demonstrates that it was those who were actually strong in faith who also struggled with things in similar ways. So that's a faulty idea. So Asaph in Psalm 73, do you remember the story? Where he looks at the wicked and they're prospering. And that's totally against his mind. He thinks, if somebody follows God, then they will prosper. So how is it that these people who I know are unrighteous and are, un, uh, and are wicked, how are they prospering? And it totally shatters his mind. And here I am, Lord, he says, over here working for you, and I don't prosper like that. Have you ever thought things like that? And it leads him into a state of despair, and he begins to question God and who God is. And then the Bible says in verse 17 of Psalm 73 that he goes into the sanctuary. And then he says that he considers their end. See, he was despairing because he was thinking wrongly about God. He was thinking wrongly about himself, and he was thinking wrongly about other people. And so this was sin against the Lord, and the Lord corrected him. And then what he concludes is this, is actually that prosperity that they're experiencing, that's actually a curse from the Lord, because they will never know the goodness of the Lord. And then he begins to respond in praise that he has everything that he needs because he knows the God of Scripture. And no matter if his heart fails and his flesh fails, that our God will be our rock forever. That's his conclusion. What about David in Psalm 51? Who's at a place of despair? Why? Because of his own personal sin with Bathsheba. And I could go on and on. Jonah, Solomon, Saul, all vexed in soul. Why? Because they committed sin against God. And that's one of the primary ways that we see that we experience deep despair, even uh, the, the symptoms of depression. But that's not the only thing. Sometimes people think that biblical counselors believe that if you experience any types of symptoms related to mental health issues, that it's got to be because you sinned. Now, we can't dismiss that that's true according to Scripture, but that's not the only reason that we see that. And so, to be a a biblical counselor, you can't just respond as in one stroke or a one-size-fits-all approach, because that's not true according to the Scripture. So you have to get to know someone well enough and listen well to know what's going on and why is it that they're experiencing these things. So the Bible says it's certainly a possibility, it's even quite common, that we experience these things because of our own personal sin. And the beautiful thing about that is God gives remedy when we sin. As Jesus would say in Matthew 11, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. Take my yoke upon you. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. And you will find rest for your soul. I want you to notice this. Many people say that God has not given the responsibility of soul care to the church. And I would argue that Jesus just stated in Matthew 11 that He is the one who is responsible for the care of souls, for bringing rest to the vexation of people's souls. This is a testimony also of Psalm 19. Verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving or restoring the soul. Now, a second reason, okay, the first reason is rebellious sin. A second reason we experience these things according to Scripture is we undergo affliction from without. That means that some natural disaster or some, someone else has caused or inflicted harm upon us. Think of someone like Job. Job 10, 1 through 18. You can read that for yourself in that. In that 
passage, Job describes even to the point where he curses the day that he was born. What does that sound like to you? Suicidal ideation, actually. That Job, whom God's own testimony said was the most righteous man on earth at that time, who was blameless, the Lord says. Choose him if you thought about him, right? He was blameless before God. And yet he says, I curse the day that I was ever born. I don't want to live if this is what life is like, he says. What about Naomi in the book of Esther? And she, does, she says, don't call me by that name anymore. My experiences have been so deep and despairing. Call me Mara. Call me bitter. That's, that's demonstrating for us that sometimes it's because of affliction from without. It doesn't necessarily mean that there's anything wrong with you from within. What it means is that you're responding to natural affliction that's happening to you from without. Uh, What about if we witness wickedness? There ought to be a stirring in the soul of a believer that we we see and are saddened by what we we witness going on in the world, the unrighteousness that we see happening. Particularly in in my own country, this month, June, uh, being Pride Month, where we we think differently, right? When we look at the, the landscape of our culture, how wicked and ungodly we see it. That ought to stir within us who believe uh, a brokenness for the world. That we would see the world the way God sees the world. That it would break our hearts at the unrighteousness of people. Jeremiah was like that. Jeremiah was absolutely despairing. Very desperate in life. Extreme matters of, um, of despair as well. Not just in the book of Jeremiah as he experiences that. But he writes about it in the book of Lamentations. And, and what's the issue going on there? He's witnessing the wickedness of God's people. And he's seeing from God's perspective and he's responding with the heart of God being broken over the response of his people. What about Elijah? Who just a few days before was standing on the mountain telling the people of Israel that they needed to choose, finally choose between uh, the God of the, the prophets or the one true God. Standing there boldly, calling down fire from heaven. And yet here he is in a cave and he believes he's the only one left. And he asked God if he would just kill him. Take his life. Because he feared Jezebel. And he feared that he was isolated. But he witnessed lots of wickedness. The the fourth is the the people who are wicked. The Bible describes a category of those who are wicked. Listen to what Isaiah says about this. But the wicked are like the tossing sea. Meaning that their inner man is constantly in turmoil. Up and down. Their life is dictated by what happens on the outside of them. For it cannot be quiet, the Bible says. And its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. So the wicked would be described in this way. Why? Because peace is not found in a feeling. The Scriptures reveal that peace is found in a person. And His name is Jesus. And those who are wicked don't have Jesus. Those who are wicked do not experience peace because peace is a fruit of the Spirit as the Spirit, by the Word, exalts Christ in our heart because He has been the one mediator between God and man making peace with God, Romans 5.1 says to us. And then the, the fifth thing, and this is a question that you should be asking because our culture talks about this in terms of Uh, physical problems relative to depression, but even in bodily weakness, that when our bodies are weak. Now, here's what I would say to you. Take something, for example, like uh, hypothyroidism. Uh, That's that's a a problem with your thyroid, where a, a symptom is that you would experience emotional despair. You would experience what we would classically call depression. 
Now, here's the, here's the difficulty in diagnosing something like this, is we automatically think depression in and of itself is a disease all its own. When in reality, it's a, it's a symptom of the true pathology that a person is experiencing with their thyroid. That's an issue of bodily weakness. But here's the thing. Am I denying that bodily weakness exists? I'm not denying bodily weakness exists. Of course it does. Think of Hannah, for example, in 1 Samuel chapter 1. Do you remember? She was not able to produce children. And how was she responding? Right? The vexation of her soul, she was responding in such a deep and emotional way that, uh, that the, the prophet believed that she was actually intoxicated. So she was moved with emotion. Why? Because of her own bodily weakness, crying out to the Lord in despair. What about Jesus? The Bible describes Him as a man of sorrows. And as His body was being torn and broken for us, the Bible tells us, John sixteen thirty three that Jesus says, in this world you will have tribulation and trouble. And if you follow Me, He continues to say, then, then you will experience things just like I've experienced. And so we have this false reality in the church to think that everything in life should be sanitary, and if I'm not experiencing that, something must be wrong with, you, with me. I would submit just the opposite according to a Christian perspective. That the Bible describes lots of different ways because of the curse of sin in the world why we experience these types of feelings. Now that's not to dismiss them. That's not to push those things aside. In every one of these cases, what's the call? The call according to Scripture in every one of these cases, no matter which of the five you're categorized in, is to come to God. Notice why it is in the Scriptures that God is recognized as rock, as shelter, as deliverer, as our fortress, as our hope. Why is He revealed that way? Because you're going to need Him in that way. You're going to need Him to be a shelter in times like what? When you've been afflicted from without and you're feeling like the world is crumbling in on you. You're going to need Him as a Redeemer, as a shelter to hide in from the wrath of God. That's what Jesus provided. You're going to need that when? When you've been rebellious in sin and you're experiencing the guilt and the shame that's involved in that. What about in times where as you get older and your body is decaying? which happens to us all. That promise of God is also true. That because we are sinners, our bodies decay. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 makes very clear that even though our outer man is wasting away because of our, our experience of death, that the inner man can be renewed day by day by day. That's the beauty of what Jesus is able to do and His Word is able to do. He is our true rock, our true fortress, our true deliverer, and our true shelter. Now what I want you to realize is this. I have not one time promised that all of your experiences are going to change or even get better. Because that's not what the Bible promises. But what God prays for the disciples in John 17, God, I'm not asking you to take them out of this world. I'm asking you to walk through with them through the world. That you would sanctify them in your truth because your word is truth. And what God has done is He's given us His truth. To do what? To walk through this world demonstrating in a dark, turbulent world that to, to hold on to Christ, who the writer of Hebrews says is the anchor of our soul, that that's the reason that we have hope. And that when, when He returns, that He will make all things new. All the things which create destruction and death and despair and depression 
and all these emotional ups and downs that we experience in life, that we cling to Christ because there will be coming a day, Revelation 21.5, when He will make all things that are broken, He'll make them right. And so we need to have a Christian perspective when we think about this. I'll finish with Matthew 11, which I've already mentioned. Jesus says, Come to Me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. What does He assume? What does He assume? You wonder why the Bible talks a lot about anxiety and fear and despair? Because it know, the, the God of heaven knows that in the curse of the world you're going to experience it a lot. And He's going to give you hope from it or through it. Matthew 11, He says, Come to Me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. What does He assume about life? Life is full of uh, difficulty and struggle. And then He says, Take My yoke upon you. And come and learn of me. This is a process where, oh, now that I understand these things in the Scripture, I'm just perfect and never experience any problems anymore. Wouldn't that be great? But that's not what he says. You come and learn of me. This is a process of sanctification. Where we are putting off the old man and the love and desires that go with it. And now putting on the new man, renewing our mind according to the truth of the Scripture. Not the way we assume things are in the world. And as we learn of Christ, what does he say? You come to me because I am gentle and lowly. See, one of the things that we've done in churches is we act as though things like depression, fear, anxiety, worry, that those things are anathema unto God. And what God calls us to is to say, you bring those to me. You see, our fear of other people keeps us from admitting that we struggle with these things. When God's saying, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. And he's saying, it's my church that's intended to minister my word in my name to give that which I restore to those who are broken. And you will find rest for your what? Soul. So if we want to know about true biblical soul care, we find the sufficiency of the word found in the sufficiency of our Christ. And here's what I would submit to you. Is that the Bible explains our human experiences better than any other system explains our human experiences in the world. So what I've just done tonight is I've tried to help you to see that the Bible doesn't dismiss all the difficulty and despair that we experience in life. The Bible actually explains it in much more detail and in much greater degree and in much greater specificity than the world ever could accomplish. And yet the Bible doesn't shy away from those realities. He actually... Um, gives us the answer to those realities. And it's found in Christ through the sufficient Word. And so the, the, the church is called to minister specifically to those who are broken. Here's the reality is we need each other as believers. We need to help each other. This is why the New Testament describes the ministry of the one another's in the church fellowship. That as we grow and learn from the Word, those who teach us the Word, those who shepherd us like Christ, that we grow with and for one another. Through what? Through the difficulties of of this life. Through the ups and downs and the ebbs and flows of life. Through loss and despair and difficulty. And yet reminding each other that Christ is the anchor of our soul. Not to mean we would never experience despair and difficulty and fear and worry but to walk through those moments of difficulty clinging to Christ, hoping in what's to come. So the the summation is this. We all need friends to tend the garden of our soul. The friends who are believers in Christ and who trust the sufficient Word.
All right, it's time. I'll take some questions if you have questions. And listen, I don't want you to be shy. You can ask whatever question that you want. I'm not easily offended. This is a very controversial topic, and it's okay. So I want you to ask whatever you want, and I'll do my best to give you, uh, give you a biblical explanation from uh, your question. So I'm certain that you have questions. So I want to encourage you to ask those. Anybody want to ask a, a question? I'll kick off, Dale. Thank you. Join in. Mm-hmm. I've forgotten, well, two things. I've forgotten the author of the book, The Myth of the Chemical Curve. Yep. So you'll answer that one quite quickly. That'll be an easy one. Yep. Joanna Moncrief. That, that's, a, that's an easy one to start with. Hmm. Okay. Now, some people might say, do you know... I, that that I, assumes that this one is a less easy one. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Some people might say, you know... Um, you know, I've had depression, I, I went to a doctor, they gave me these pills, yeah. and that helped me, yeah. and they're helping me. Mm-hmm. What would you say? Yeah. Um, so I would say statistics demonstrate that about um, that people who take antidepressant medication, that there's about 30%, 30 to 35% efficacy. Okay, so what that means is, what are we saying is efficacy? Uh, we're describing that, that people now report, after taking medication for a certain amount of time, uh, that they are feeling better. Okay, so everything is based on how a person feels. Now, that assumes something that's true, is that we are who we are based on how we feel. So that's number one. Number two is when we think about medication, if it was curative as opposed to palliative care, if it was curative, we would have a much higher efficacy rate. Uh, one of the things that British psychiatrists are helping us with is, is people who take depressive medication or antidepressant medication uh, is that there are addictive properties to it as well. And so we're forgetting that what happens to the other 65% of people. And that's a wide range. Some people say it really doesn't help me. Some people, uh, it actually increases suicidal ideation. There's been a study in the last 10 years uh, that described um, young people who take antidepressant medication uh, from ages 15 um, to 20, uh, 15 to 24 actually increases suicidal ideation by 43%. And so when we look at those statistics, um, it it doesn't tell us much other than it does treat the symptoms of some people. Now, most people who are on antidepressant medication, particularly if it's helpful to them, it becomes symptom relief, and that's great, that's fine. What my biggest concern is is that we start to then think that medicine is the answer to all of our problems. When in reality, even if something is curative, medicine's not the full answer. It's helpful. We should take it. That's really great. It's really wonderful. Uh, But it's a facade because um, we're all going to die, all of us. And so any type of care that we get, and and I'm I'm in favor of physicians. I love physicians. I think they're wonderful. I think they demonstrate the grace of God um, that's common to all man and is really wonderful. But when we start having this facade, thinking that those things are the answer for who we are, it takes our eyes off of our ultimate hope. And so the Bible promises that because of sin, we will all die. And if we don't have a remedy for that, we've not helped someone. So when we talk about medication, first of all, I would say antidepressants in particular, um, it is effective for some. And in terms like that, don't ever forget if it is effective for you that it's not curative. So whatever caused the vexation in your soul... We need, to, we need to deal with. So if there are people who are extremely depressed, they may, I may send them to a doctor or whatever and um, do process of elimination if there are any organic or bodily weaknesses contributing to this. I want to make sure that they're getting treated by a physician. While at the same time, I'm not making a false dichotomy to say, 
Well, because we think this might be physical or some sort of organic contributing factor, that there is no duty of the church. Well, I would argue that that's quite foolish because we are body and what? Soul. So even when our body is weak, we need to be strengthened in what? Soul. So yes, go be treated by a doctor, but we still have a responsibility in the church that if you do have a bodily weakness, that you be built up in your inner man so that you can endure the suffering. That's the biblical perspective, right? And so um, many people who even describe efficacy of antidepressant medication describe it this way. They say, well, it works because I don't feel as bad as I used to feel, but I also I don't feel joy either. And so it's sort of this happy medium of my highs are not too high and my lows are not too low. And what that tells us is it's not actually repairing a chemical imbalance in the brain. It's actually giving us chemicals that basically like flatline our mood. Uh, and, and there's research, again, by British psychiatrists who are, who are revealing some of this. And then um, now doctors are having to come to grips with the, the long-term side effects of these types of medications, which is another issue that ought to be considered um, when approaching you know, depression from that perspective as well. So there are a lot of things to think about. There's not like one single answer, a lot of factors. Um, so I, I don't chide someone who's on antidepressant medication. What I do is I encourage them to say, uh, this is giving you temporary relief, and so let's address some of the things that brought this up in the first place uh, from the Scriptures. And what I've often seen, uh, if, uh, let me just give this as a clarification, because this is a really controversial topic um, related to psychotropic medication, is if someone comes to see me and they give a PDI, which is a personal data inventory, and they lay out that they've been diagnosed with depression and maybe they're on some sort of uh, antidepressant medication, I rarely bring that up to them. I don't say, like, I'll never see you as long as you're on this medication. Like, that's not what a biblical counselor says. Some, sometimes people have that mentality of biblical counselor, but that's not true. In fact, I rarely bring it up. What I do is I start addressing the issues that they say are contributing to the problems in their life. And so what I, as I do this, I start to describe some of the things that they need to work on and so on and so forth from the Scriptures. And they usually come back, I don't know, this is four to six to eight weeks, something like that. And they'll say, you know what, it's really strange. I, I sort of feel weird on my medicine, and I think I don't feel really bad anymore. And so what, what do you suggest I do with this? Like, that's interesting that you brought this up. And so what I say is something just like this. I'll say, man, it's interesting, and some of the things that you're experiencing are right, according to what most people report about that medication, and that you should go see your prescribing physician. And I'll tell you what, if you say that you're wanting to get off the medication, I think you should consult with him. Or her, and as you talk with them, I'll commit to work with you through the process of you coming off. And, and I don't want you to do it according to my uh, desires. I want you to do this according to what your pre- prescribing physician says. And so I commit to work with them through that process of, of dosing down, uh, because they will, as they come off the medication, it, it's psychotropic medication is is powerful. Okay, it's it's you should never come off of it cold turkey. It's actually har- it can be harmful, even fatal. Uh, and I don't mean that to scare people, it's just the reality. So you need a physician to help you dose down if that's something you're wanting to do. Uh, and then they're going to have mood swings often coming off of medication like that because they become dependent on it. And so I just walk them through that and how to handle some of that, make sure they're okay on the other side of it. So does that make sense? Yeah, thanks very much. I found it helpful. Yeah. The second answer was definitely a lot longer than the first Yeah, answer. sorry about that. Long, <laughs> long answer. So I just want to give clarity because that is a really, really controversial topic. And again, I could talk on just that topic. Um, there's so much to be said. 
about even the history of medication. That's sort of a side hobby of mine is to study the history of psychopharmacology. If you care to read about stuff like that, as a secular guy actually here, David Healy is his name. Uh, he teaches down in England, and uh, he wrote a book called The Creation of Psychopharmacology, which is a really um, interesting read as he talks about how the history of those things came together. And so, Good. Any questions? That was a good one. Any others? Surely you have questions. Often um, depression is linked to anxiety, anxiety and depression, yeah. going on life insurance or whatever, mm. tend to go together. Mm. Um, would you classify anxiety as one of the rebellious sins in that, why you experience it? Jesus says, do not be anxious. Yeah. Would you classify that as the rebellious sin that needs to be addressed first? And then that would get rid of any depression some way. Yeah, that's a really good question. And I, so the two are sort of related, um, not always equivalent or exactly the same, because I think the emotional expressions can be quite different. But when you look at Scripture, um, fear, worry, anxiety, and despair are all very interrelated. And what that tells us is not that the emotions themselves are exactly the same, but the source of those emotions are the same. You and I were created beings intended to be dependent upon one thing, God. And we were intended to fear God. So most people think, well, I'm not supposed to fear at all, right? Because fear is bad and fear leads to anxiety and that sort of thing. And people say, well, the opposite of fear is peace, so I'm just going to pursue peace, right? Like that's eating candy and eating ice cream all day. That's not the reality. As a matter of fact, you can't, as a human being, manufacture peace yourself. So you were created to fear God and God alone. When we start fearing other things, whether that be uh, things on the earth that we want or things that we think on the earth that can harm us. When Jesus says, don't fear the one who can destroy your body, fear what can destroy body and soul. Do you see how he remedied the issue of fear? The issue of fear was to be remedied by fear of God. That's how we correct it. And so when we talk about issues of anxiety and despair, that fear being misplaced by fearing someone else, fearing what they think, fearing what might happen to me, and so on, is in and of itself a distrust of who? God. And listen, here's the reality. If you start to think that your life is dependent on you, here's what I would tell you. You should probably be a lot more anxious, and you should probably be a lot more despairing. Because here's the reality. When you think about yourself, you come to the grips that you are not as powerful as you wish you were, you're not as wise as you wish you were, you're not as in control as you wish you were. And life experience presses you to realize that reality. And so what happens? Our responses often come in the form of anxiety and despair. But here's the thing, you're believing a wrong reality. So what's broken is not your emotion. What's broken is what you believe to be true. And so how do we remedy that? You need to start to fear the Lord which is the beginning of all wisdom and how we see life and how we walk faithful with Him. And that begins to remedy how we respond. And it makes it to where we are dependent upon God, who is stable, because He's the same yesterday, today, and forever, rather than our experiences. People, the first thing people ask you is, how are you doing today? Is that a common phrase here? Yeah. How are you doing today? And what are we measuring? We're measuring who we are, And what we believe to be true about our experiences of the day. Think about how despairing that is. Are you in control of those experiences? No, even in the morning when the light hits your eyes, you're like, I wish that would go away so we could have a good day and just go back to sleep, right? So our experiences, we we feel like we're at the mercy of those things. 
And think about how varied that is. So if your life is dependent upon your experiences being constant, you're in despair. You know why? Because your experiences vary. Some good, some bad. And your emotions go with that, up and down and back and forth. right? And so if you see that your life is dependent not on those things, but upon God, who the Bible says is steady and stable and sturdy, then your life can be steady and stable and sturdy, no matter the the winds that blow in reality in the world. Do you see? So yes, those things are often related because they are symptoms. They are not causes. The causes we find, the Bible describes, as being the issues of the heart. Those things that we believe to be true. The loves, the, the affections, the desires, the passions that we have. That's how the Bible describes the issues of the heart. And so when those things are not dependent upon God or being in pursuit of God, then we find ourselves living in anxiety and despair because we're trusting in ourselves. Notice, what, what did Jesus come to remedy? 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 14 and following says, The love of Christ controls us or compels us. Verse 15, he says this, um, So that Christ died for all, so that you may now no longer live for yourself, but for Him. So the remedy for everything that we, we struggle with is to stop living for ourselves. And so when we live for ourselves, we want good experiences. We want things to be perfect, and the experiences are not. They're back and forth, up and down. So it's the correction of fearing God first, above all things. Does that make sense? Yeah, very good. But that's why it's intertwined frequently. And, and depression, by the way, about 95% of those who even do self-reporting in depression um, describe certain events that led to something like this. So that, al- that also destroys the narrative of, of, of biological cause as well. So, good. I that we can introduce perhaps a polarization. You know, you are either or Mm -hmm. as far as the way you approach this subject. Where in fact sometimes it needs a bit of both. Mm -hmm. When you say either or, clarify what you mean. So for instance, in your comment, you know, that just because of a rebellious spirit, you know, you get anxious Mm -hmm. and have anxiety. Mm -hmm. I mean, I can appreciate how some people who you might hear that being said to them. Mm-hmm. You know, that, you know, they're going to find that quite difficult to take. Yeah, sure. So that's why I distinguished in the, in the talk, there are five basic expressions in the Scripture that, that, um, that give cause to our despairing heart. One of those is a rebellious, sinful heart. The rest of them have different experiences that we have in life. So it's not boiled down to only a rebellious heart. I think that's faulty. For example... Um, let's say that, that uh, we live in a very safe area in the United States, but let's just say that there was a man who's trying to break into my house. Uh, in that moment, okay, there's probably going to be adrenaline that hits me, and I'm going to get up, and hopefully I'm going to be a man and defend my family. Okay. Now, in that moment, what, what is driving me? There's a, there's a sort of fear, a natural fear that we experience when life is in danger. That in and of itself, I would not argue, is something that is sinful or rebellious in any way. I think that's a desire from God to preserve life. And that I'm gonna, my responsibility as the man in my family is to do everything I can to preserve those God has entrusted to me. 
And so here we have a, a, what I would call, what John Flavel calls a natural fear that becomes a motivating factor. And part of that is I want to preserve life because I believe what God has given in life is intrinsically valuable. So even in moments like that, I would say, no, it's not always sinful rebellion. The Bible is much more nuanced than that, uh, than just to say there's always one cause and one effect. The Bible describes it sort of like this, that the epicenter of all these things is found in the heart. And that there are many reasons, as we're impacted by the world, that are are the causes of the responses that we give in in any given case. Sometimes that's rebellious sin. Sometimes that's being afflicted from a natural disaster or things from without. Sometimes that's witnessing things that are terrible in the world. And we respond in appropriate ways. That's why I say despair is not always sinful. Right? Or when you're, when you're sad, deeply saddened by something. Here's what I would say. Take, for example, um, on grief. There's no distinction in, de- in clinical depression uh, relative to grief. So if somebody dies in your family and you're grieving for more than two weeks, guess what? You can actually be, uh, you can actually be diagnosed with clinical depression. And I would say that's the world's attempt without any type of nuance or specificity um, that they, they can't explain why we experience things like that. When God doesn't say grieving is sinful. God doesn't say grieving is wrong. What does He say? You who are believers, you grieve differently. You don't grieve like those who are without hope. But He doesn't say you don't grieve. Do you see what I'm saying? So we start looking at emotions and we say that's good and that's bad. And I'm saying that's an oversimplification. The Bible never says that. The Bible actually describes that it's good for us when we experience grief to grieve deeply because it's an acknowledgement of legitimate loss because of sin in the world and that our hearts are like the heart of God. God does not delight in the death of the wicked even. And so our heart is like the heart of God when we experience grief or when we experience loss. Grief, loss, grief is normal. We shouldn't shy away from that or act like that's some sort of diagnosable problem that we have in life. What it should cause us to do is to hate sin all the more. Right? Because we, we recognize what caused that loss. The Bible says that what caused that death and that loss that we're experiencing is sin. We don't want to contribute to what brings about those things. Does that make sense? So you're right. We do have to nuance that distinctly. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, I guess it's just a concern that sometimes yeah. we can oversimplify things a little bit. Yeah. And um, you know, some folks listening can mm-hmm. fall into the trap of thinking, well, you know, the medication side of things mm-hmm. can never be considered at yeah. any point. Um, sure. A lot of what you say mm-hmm. is very helpful. Sure. To take that into account, but it, it doesn't mean that we polarize the two sides. Yeah, yeah. Now, I don't think that that's fair or right. Uh, what I'm saying is our culture right now is polarizing it to describe that we only have a biological problem. Now, we have to be careful because we're not only spiritual beings. You can't polarize it to say that every single problem is only because of some sort of spiritual issue. What I would say is that even what we experience on the outside always has spiritual implication. I would argue that, as, as the, the Bible describes, uh, whatever we experience in life is a spiritual issue. Not always being responsible for what happens to us, but certainly being responsible to God for how we respond to every situation. And that's what's really critical in the matter, uh, is how we respond. Because I don't think you do anything that's unspiritual. Right? If, if eating and drinking, the most mundane things you do, God says to do it with all your heart, or anything you put your hands to do, he says, to do it with all your heart. The, the summation 
uh, is that we do everything we do to the glory of God. And so again, while we're not responsible to things that happen to us, we are responsible for how we respond to those. And that's what should guide us. And so to reduce it to spiritual only or biological only, both those things are wrong. But we, we can't separate those two. So, does that make sense? Good. Very good. Any other questions? I know we're sort of running long, but I'm happy to stay here as long as you want to ask questions. Okay. Thank you. Hey, listen, I want to say thank you so much for attending tonight. I hope that it was at least engaging to you uh, to, to hear the talk, to maybe think uh, even more deeply about the Scriptures. I, I haven't mentioned even the organization that I work with, ACBC. There's always opportunity for more training, things that you might be interested in. We do have a card that I would encourage you if you want to. You don't have to, but if you want to fill that out, uh, you can. we can send you more information. We'd be happy to do that. I'm not selling that because I really don't care about that personally. Um, what I care about is that churches do what God has called churches to do because we have the Word. And so that's what's important. I want to remind you we have some books out back. I would encourage you to, uh, to uh, look at those if they can be helpful. Uh, and again, you can search website that we have uh, that has resources on topics just like depression and lots of others that we deal with in our human uh, depravity. And so I encourage you to, to reach out there. And if you need anything, happy to help. So thank you so much for joining tonight. Elsa, you want to say a final word? Okay, very good. Thank you.